What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 11 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, managing editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this issue of the podcast, we will dive into the October issue of MD. We'll get into the It's Questionable section, and we'll discuss the difference between plating a brass snare drum with black nickel, nickel, or chrome, and how that affects the sound of the drum. I'll break down a lesson that I wrote for the Rock and Jazz Clinic section called the Flexible Five. We'll discuss cover artist Mr. Elon Rubin. In our gear review section, we'll check out a new drum set from the Angel Drum Company, as well as some V-Classic cymbals. And as always, we will give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Mike, what is up, buddy? How are you doing, pal? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I've just finished an amazing uh, camp. The last two camps of the year are advanced camps here. So the it's a real different thing you know when i have my intermediate camps it's definitely a teacher and eight students and when i have my advanced camps it, it seems silly to have all that talent in the room and keep it as teacher and eight students so it really becomes a nine person exploration of these concepts i just throw these concepts out there and instead of saying here's your pdf you need to practice this it would be something like Here's this concept. You guys all have 30 minutes to develop your own take on that concept, and then you're going to get up on stage and show it to the class. So we're we're growing so much faster because we're getting you know nine people's ideas in a room instead of just my own. So it's 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 That's really cool. fun. So I just finished one camp, and then I have one more coming up in a week and a half. How do you uh, determine beginner, immediate, and advanced for your camps? That's tough. So we don't because we get so many people that want to come. It's impossible to like do any kind of auditions or anything. So really what I do is I make videos on Mike'sLessons.com that say this is what will be covered in the intermediate camp and this is what will be covered in the advanced camp. And and the advanced camp says, okay, you should be very familiar with these things. And then if you're extremely unsure about which camp you should come to, then you can send us a video. And then we don't do beginner camps. My thought on that is if you're just starting out with drums, you shouldn't be spending $1,000 before travel to come to a drum camp. You should be taking private lessons and getting your fundamentals down. Yeah, right. So what was the main focus for this advanced camp, the the past one? So each it's it's set up where each day is like a day of school. So we, we have an hour of warm-up and hand exercises. And so maybe day one... It's flammed rudiments and then what I would call chop builders. So it's combinations of flammed rudiments um, into a multi-measure pattern. So what would happen is I would teach all of that until they had it down. And then as soon as they had it down, I would say, okay, now you have 15 minutes to create something new with that concept. So somebody might come up and say, I, I did this chop builder over the top of a bio foot ostinato uh one kid came up with this killer he's uh, his name's andrew he's from new york and he came up with this killer foot ostinato that was um let's see one measure of tumbao followed by one measure of samba so it was and then he just uh played the flam exercise over it so we have that and then uh it's almost like like i said it's like periods of class we go from that and then we have an um independence hour that we do and then we have a groove freedom hour that we do then it's uh fills and creativity and then recording where they have to record to a click and uh, then at the end of the day, the last thing is um, what we call our live lesson shed, which is 
they have to get out on my kit. We broadcast it live to all of our student base, and they they play a song. And it's just the nerves of knowing that a couple thousand people around the world are watching you play on five cameras. <laughs> Yeah. While I'm standing there with my arms folded, <laughs> and uh, it really just kind of it kind of gets them prepped for like the audition sense and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah so it was cool. Nice. Well, you know, I've started practicing one of the things that you uh, you talked about. And I think it was maybe two episodes ago. You're talking about the the Ireland camp and how yeah uh, with Mark and Sput. Yeah. So you said Mark was one of the things he talked about was shifting your fills and stuff by a like a sixteenth note, something like that. Working on yeah those permutations. So. I took that idea and started applying it to the rudimental solo three camps. Do you know that piece? No. Super basic. I mean, it's like one of the original, like colonial style uh, rudimental solos. So it's super basic. It's basically just triplets with a couple accents per measure. Okay. So I've just been messing around with that and, and trying to just go through it, each measure normal, and then the next measure just delay the accents by an eighth note and then delay one oh, more wow. eighth note. So it goes through all three triplet partials. Nice. It's been cool, and then I then I put the the metronome on the offbeat, so it's a, oh. whole, it's a whole it's a whole head trip. But it's been fun. It's good for definitely good for internalizing time. And I've been really hesitant in not allowing myself to write it out so I can see it because I'm a sure, very much because that's visual, how you do things. Yeah, exactly. I'm a visual <laughs> learner, so I'm like, all right, let's not do that. Let's just figure it out by ear. It's been challenging. The last measure of that piece has like a little like a wrap up thing with three accents in a row four accents in a row and it it took me a minute to figure out how does that work so it, I, I, when it's shifted yeah when it's shifted the two different ways but it's been and it's then are been you really doing cool. anything with your feet oh heck no i mean i'm just tapping <laughs> just keeping the quarter note. <laughs> well that's what i mean okay so you're like quarter notes on the kick and then maybe two and four on the hi-hats or something yeah or just or just quarter notes on the kick yeah when you have the metronome on the offbeat and you're yeah you know permutating you need something to ground it so i'm just tapping quarter notes with my feet it's easy for me to just sit here and armchair quarterback it when I'm not on the kit <laughs> trying it, but it would be a whole different ball of wax. If, um, cool, yeah. man. Well, hopefully, maybe uh, shoot me a PDF of the of the exercise and I'll try it with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's I think it's a uh, whatever you call it now. It's it's free, so you can you can search it and find it. It's called Three Camps, cool. and I'm doing it without the rolls. It's it's basically an accented double stroke roll. I took hook all the rolls out and just working on the accents. It's been fun. I mean, I'm a weekend nice. and I'm, I still the the when you do it. When you displace it by one triplet partial, so everything's hitting on the middle note, man, that is uncomfortable. Now, is it cheating if I throw it into the groove scribe? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. What is the point of building cool technology if I can't use it? I, well, it would only be cheating if you looked at it. If you just okay, put it in there it. and listen to it. No, even then, I don't think it's it's fair. I think it's unfair. Yeah, it's not. No, it's totally unfair. <laughs> hey, man, that's okay. It's a. I, I see the GrooveScribe as a creative tool, so uh, not as a cheat. So I'll yeah. just try to be creative with it. GrooveScribe. I got to get into that a little bit more. You showed me uh, an early workings of it, but where's it at now? Yeah, so it's it's launched. Um, it's growing all the time, and it's. Um, the real goal of it was to kind of blend together the people that needed tabs and that were always trying to write in tabs, but they couldn't write in notation form. So what the GrooveScribe does is it allows you to kind of use that drum tab type of creativity that you're used to, or if you're used to Fruity Loops or any drum machine program where you're just filling in dots in a grid. Well, as you're filling in those dots in the grid, it's simultaneously creating the proper music theory or the the notation for you so what's really cool is for the people that can kind of read but they're not sure they can just start clicking on dots and it'll create the notation in real time for them so they can see like well what would it what is the shape if i click on 
the first sixteenth note and the last, you know, and the fourth sixteenth note, and they'll see, oh, that's a dotted eighth note beamed together with a sixteenth note. Now I know what that shape is. That's one and the uh of one. Um, so it's really cool for that. And so it's on mikeslessons.com. And the, the coolest part about all of it is it's completely free to the world. It's uh, open source and everything. So anyone can use it. And the, the biggest thing that we're going for here is just like a groove sharing platform. Right. You create a groove. And instead of sending me anything, you just send me the URL. And then when I put that URL into my computer or my tablet or any smartphone, then it loads the groove because um, all of the information is actually in the URL. And the really cool thing, too, is the Groove Scribe itself, the app, it, as soon as it's loaded in a web page, then you don't need to be on the Internet anymore to use it. So you could load it while you're at the airport and then get on the airplane and create your grooves and create your piece of music because you can add as many measures as you want. And it still works when you're not on the Internet. And it's constantly updating the URL, whether you're on, connected to the Internet or not. And then as soon as you get back connected to the Internet, you just grab that URL and share it with whoever you want. So That's cool. I it's mean, hard to explain, but I want people to try it. Well, early when you showed me the, the beta version, we were like, you, I think I maybe I sent you a groove first. And then you, like within five minutes, sent me a variation that I never would have thought of. So that to me was like, this is cool for, for really expanding your ideas and collaborating to be like, here's a groove, add something to it. And then it comes right back, and I can hear it, and I can mess with it. Yeah, and I really see it growing as something that we didn't intend for, but as soon as I started using it, my thought was, man, this would be so great for singers or or songwriters that don't know how to write drum notation, but they know how to program drum machines, and they could just send me... Because the thing is, since it's all MIDI-based, you can slow down the groove all the way down to 30 BPM. Um, So... They could say, okay, this is the groove I want in the verse of the song tonight. They could send it to me, and now I can start prepping for the song and just save and just bookmark the URL, slow it down to as slow as I need to go. Um, we also even have a swing meter on there. So we have an algorithm that'll take all the E's and U's and push them back towards the downbeats and the ends to create like a, a swing feel. So it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And the great thing is it's, you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an Android. It works on every device. If you can connect to the internet, no matter what device you're using, laptop, desktop, phone, um, you don't have to worry anymore about platforms. It just If you can connect to the internet, it works. So yeah, just go to mikeslessons.com and then to the right of the menu, you'll see a logo that says Groovescribe. And like I said, it's free to the world. Well, let's move into the It's Questionable section of the October issue of Modern Drummer Magazine. So can you real quick for our listeners break down the It's Questionable part of your magazine? What is it? What is it for? Yeah, that's been there, maybe not the first year, but it's been there for many, many years. And basically it started out as a, as a platform for readers to write, like send in letters and ask questions. So it could, okay. be, it could be about gear, it could be about career, it could be anything that they just i mean the age of of drum forums and and really the internet kind of uh diminished this column a little bit but we still get some good questions in um mostly these days it's like i have this old snare drum what the heck is it what's it worth that's the majority of stuff and then you guys search out the answer for that sometimes you outsource it or you just answer it yourself yeah it just depends most of the time i try to find like a vetted expert in that so for vintage gear i always send it to harry kangany who's been writing collector's corner for us for for decades so he knows nice. just about everything and then if it's about a specific brand i'll try to reach out to someone at that company that might be able to answer it um so it's like pawn stars yeah essentially you guys you, guys, you, you have your vintage guy you have your uh, <laughs> yeah. american history guy your gun guy we cool. bring them in yeah 
Yeah, so this this month we got a uh, well actually I'll tell you I'll, I'll admit that this question is my question. Uh I was l- watching a Chris McHugh clinic he did at uh in Canada, the Regina. Country drummer? Yeah, yeah, Nashville yeah. guy. He was he, at the yep. time he was with Keith Urban. So he was talking someone asked him about like what, you know, what gear do you set up in the studio for the first time and he said that his his home base snare drum is a nickel over brass that that's always set up and waiting for him and that's how he kind of gauges the room and where maybe he'll need to adjust to a different snare if it's too bright or too dark or whatever got it so it got me thinking like well what is a nickel over brass why is that different than just a brass how is that different than black nickel and how is that different than chrome over brass like what why would he say specifically a nickel over brass not a black nickel over brass i always thought it was just for looks until i read this article to be totally honest yeah, so I sent it out to a good buddy of mine, Kurt Waltrip, who uh, his company, Joyful Noise, is they specialize in, in brass snare drums. He's done everything from silver-plated to gold-plated. I mean, he's got... And now he does, like, raw brass that he torches so it has a patina look. So I figured if anyone knew what these, these finishes would do, would do, it would be him. It'd be the one guy in the entire drum industry that studied physics at UC Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> and dude, that's exactly how he answered the question. He answered it just like a guy that studied physics at UC Berkeley. That was If you guys haven't read the It's Questionable article in the October issue, you really need to because by the end I was like, did I just listen to a TED Talk? What was yeah, that? Yeah, pretty much. And it made does it makes you want to buy a bunch of brass snare drums. It I mean. really does. <laughs> uh maybe Joyful noise might be a little bit out of my price range. Those are some. Those are the real deal right there. Yeah. So I mean, the big question was like, what is what is regular nickel versus black nickel versus chrome? Yeah. So we got into that, and it essentially comes down to the the plating. Originally, I guess it was back in the twenties. He said they just only yeah nineteen twenties. Yeah, they only used nickel. That's all there was. But then when chrome was invented, that replaced nickel because it was shiny and it didn't it didn't erode over time. So it started out as just a, a complete aesthetic, practical reason, and it's turned into, it affects the tone. Uh, with nickel being a little bit warmer, uh, chrome being the brightest option, and then black nickel being the, the warmest of the, the three. How funny is it that the, the sound properties mirror the looks? You, you would think yeah. that chrome would be the brightest, and it is. And, you know, as as the looks get darker, there's actual physics to back up the fact that the sound is getting darker due to the the, you know, the difference between density and mass. I, I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah. And I've, I've been on a quest to try to find a affordable, regular nickel over brass snare drum. And it's it's kind of hard. <laughs> it's kind of hard. Because <laughs> you're talking like old vintage 20s Ludwigs or really high end versions like Craviatos or something. Sure. So I don't have that. I don't have a regular nickel over brass. That was the frustration for me. It's like I have brass drums, I have chrome over brass, and I have a black nickel brass. I don't have a regular yeah. nickel over brass. Yeah, it's funny because you know I have the chrome over brass, the COB um, USA Custom drum, and I have it uh, in USA Custom, and then I have they actually made a, a limited run of chrome over brass new classic, which I think is probably the exact same shell, just with new classic lugs and a different badge. And they're really bright. They, you know, they sound kind of like concert snare drums, like I'd be playing in school band. Right. And I would now that I know this, I want to go to Gretsch and be like, "Have you guys ever considered a, a nickel over brass snare? And if you haven't, can we do one tomorrow?" Yeah. Um, 
I know it's not that easy, but I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's environmental issues with it, but I think there is a market. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think Craviato kind of has that new market cornered. So yeah, there's a there's a spot for people to come in. I, it might be it might be just really expensive or and or dangerous or bad for the ozone. Sure, do. I don't know. But. Well, I think it brings us back to an even different point that probably wasn't at all part of the article, but that you brought it up. With Chris, you know, it is a great thing for drummers to have a snare drum that they know. They know the sound of that snare drum, and that becomes their litmus test when they walk into the studio. Like, if they walk into the studio and that snare is super dead, then they know, oh, man, this this snare is generally bright, and now it's really dead and dark. I'm going to have to go brighter. I might have to go get my brass snare drum for this one. And that's something that, you know, myself and Mark Giuliano have been working on is – can we make a professional standard snare drum that people can just count on as like, hey, this this thing always sounds like a snare. And from this moment on, then you can decide, oh, I need to get out my 13 by 7, you know, walnut snare or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, all drummers should have, you know, that snare drum that they know the sound of. Just, I mean, it's the same thing as people being able to listen to a mix of their new album in their car, like listening to yeah. in the environment that you are accustomed to, that you're familiar with. And I think that's really brilliant that Chris has that nickel over brass snare that he just knows, I know how this thing should sound, so I judge the room off of this snare drum. Yeah, do you have a drum that you use for that? Yeah, right now it's just the 14 by 5.5 Brooklyn snare. Um, it's the one that sounds the most like a snare drum to me. And, and there are rooms that I get into, and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, this sounds like a brass snare drum. It is so bright. So I'm going to have to go with something darker. You know, I might use one of my uh, walnut snare drums, or maybe I just go to my Brooklyn 14 by 6.5, tune it down a little bit. Yeah. And then there's some rooms, you know, sometimes I'm playing outdoors, and it's it's just dead. It's it's completely dead, and it's like, okay, now I'm going to have to switch up to my chrome over brass snare. So what do you have for your main kind of litmus test snare drum? You know, it's really tough. Um Probably a five and a half by fourteen single ply maple would be my like starting point, or yeah. uh, six and a half by fourteen chrome over aluminum superphonic. Whoa! Just depending Excuse on me. on the uh, me. the genre. If it's rock and roll, I'm going to start with the superphonic. If it's something right. singer songwriter, I'm going to start with the maple. Nice. But I mean, it, now that I said that, I don't think I have one. It. Every time I listen to a song that I have to record, I'm talking studio mostly here. Sure. Uh, anytime I hear a song, I, I immediately think of three snares I should start with. So it it's always different. Right. Like if, if it's a if it's a really fast track, I'm going to go with something that's shallower and probably brass. I have no idea how you even can pick anything with the fact that you're the guy that reviews all the gear. <laughs> My head would just be mashed potatoes if every single day it was me playing a new kit, a new snare, five new cymbals from different companies. Yeah, it's unreal, man. Yeah, well, I mean, a year or two ago, I was neurotic and I would try every snare drum and every bass drum and every ride cymbal until I found the one. But now I've got it to like, all right, I know, I know what an acrylite sounds like. I know what a superphonic sounds like. I know what a Black Beauty style drum sounds like. Yeah. And I know if I want something that doesn't have so many overtones, that's when I go into the woods. Yeah. I think it also, at some point, it has to come down to us where it's like, look, just give me a drum set and I'll try my best to make it sound good. You know, I mean, I don't think that, you know, if I put Benny Greb in a room or Steve Gadd in a room, I can't see them just obsessing and obsessing on, is this a single ply snare head? I I think they would hit a drum and they'd be like, okay, in about three minutes, this is going to sound like my kit. I'm going to make it sound that way. So it comes down to us. 
Cool, man. Well, I think it gives people a lot to think about when it comes to when they see a, a metal snare drum from now on. It's so cool to think that maybe people will start going into a store and saying, is this nickel over brass <laughs> yeah. or chrome over brass? <laughs> and because as far as I know, black nickel actually requires a, uh, a triple plating <laughs> of uh, copper nickel and black nickel. I didn't even know black nickel was a thing. So huge thanks to Kurt Waltrip for his yeah. TED Talk inside your magazine. Yeah, man. He's a good dude. All right, so let's get off gear for a second and talk about your column in the, you know, the October issue, uh, the Flexible Five, which you are essentially breaking apart and restructuring the five-stroke role, right? Yeah. I mean, the concept, you know, in the beginning, when you're learning your rudiments, I think, you know, let's take the five-stroke role, for example. You, know, you learn it on the pad, and eventually you speed it up, and it finally sounds like a five-stroke role. And then you just start moving it. That's the first thing you do is like, okay, I'm going to play it on the hi-hat going from the and of, you know, you learn the, you learn the, the theory behind it. Okay, this w- lasts from the and of something into the downbeat of something or from the downbeat of something into the and or from the E to the uh. You learn the length of it if you're playing it as 30-second notes. And then you just start moving that all around the drum set. And that's kind of what I did for decades. And then eventually it just came to my ear that the five-stroke roll could also be thought of as a sound. So just this sound of boom, so it almost became more of a rhythm, but I liked the smoothness of the five-stroke roll. So what I was trying to do is break up the sticking, break up the orchestration, but still keep that smooth, almost Steve Gadd five-stroke roll thing going. So I started breaking it up around the kit, and one of the things that I just fell in absolute love with, which is very Steve Gadd, was a five-stroke roll. I'm not sure what example it is in the article, but it's doing it as inverted doubles. So it might be the third example or something. Um, yeah, it is, number three. Yeah, so taking it, and so then the, the five-stroke roll becomes right, left, left, right, right. One, two, three, four, five. So it becomes this one, two, three, four, doom, da doom, and... You know, and then I think on example four, I put the bass drum with the right hand, and yep. it was just such a a cool sound. And I just kind of thought, like, how would I explain that to anybody? That's really what the basis of the article was: is how would I explain that to somebody? And I thought, well, it's it's still got the feel of a five stroke roll, but I've just kind of changed the sticking. And then from there, as soon as I broke that one rule that the five stroke roll didn't have to be right, right, left, left, right, as far as being creative. Now the five stroke roll is that, as far as you know. PAS is concerned, but in my own mind, as soon as I broke that rule, then I was free to kind of express that anywhere around the drum set with any sticking, and I came up with some really cool stuff, so I just wanted to, you know, anything that I write for Modern Drummer, I'm not writing it for Modern Drummer, I wrote it for myself, Mm -hmm. and then I thought, well, if I want to learn this, then maybe somebody else does too, or if I enjoyed this, then I want to give this to other people, so that's really what it was about, and then... You were telling me earlier that you've done similar things with other rudiments. You were working on a four-stroke rough? Yeah, I kind of went through a phase like years ago where instead of learning long exercises, I would just grab one tiny little nugget that I maybe heard someone play or saw someone do. Usually it's like one beat or two beats long or half a beat long. Got it. And then I'll just sit with that. I'll try to play it exactly like the guy did on the recording, and then I'll just start basically letting my mind go blank and just trying it in different styles, different tempos, different orchestrations, maybe completely having that just launch me into something completely different. Or if you heard me practice at the end of an hour, you, you would have no idea that I started with something that was like a flam drag on the snare drum and ride cymbal. Right. And it just kind of went somewhere completely different. So about 
I don't know, it was a few months ago I started messing around with the four-stroke rough with the sticking being right, right, left, right. So the triplet is is two rights and a left, so dick-a-da-gut, dick-a-da-gut. Right. So I just started messing with that because that's a really common bebop sticking. Okay. Like everybody uses it. Um, and I didn't realize they were using it. I thought they were playing fives, so I would try to play like these really fast five. Fast. Yeah. Yeah, 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 trying to crunch it in there. It turns out they're just... they're. It's almost always that there's an easier way to do something you hear. They probably are doing it the easier way. So I just started messing with that four-stroke rough and playing it in the, like a jazz style and kind of just, like I limited my soloing to just using that lick in different ways. Oh, cool. So I couldn't play any kind of filler or in between. It was it was a four-stroke rough followed by a quarter note and then and then whatever variation of that I could do. So then I just started messing around, and it ended up becoming completely naturally this pretty cool five-beat phrasing. That it took after I it came out of me. I'm like, all right, I don't even know what I'm doing. Let me. Then I had to stop and say, okay, let me count that out. What is that? Oh, that's actually five. I'm playing five over four. Okay, so explain how that came out. So you the sticking stayed the same, right, right, left, right. Yep. So okay. I would do that on the snare drum and end with so it'd be right, right, left on the snare drum. And then the last right would be a bass drum and ride cymbal unison. So dig it a gish, dig it a gish, dig it a gish, like that. Dig it a gish, dig it a gish. <laughs> Can we have a full episode of just our drum speak, you know? And I'm just going, glat to glat, and you're going, dig it a dish, dig it a dish, glat to glat. I'll loop it a hundred times in the podcast. <laughs> okay, so, and then where was that being played? Like, what was the rhythm of yeah, that? Yeah, so that would. Originally, it started on four, so it was like a lead into the downbeat. So one, two, three, tick a tick Okay. But then I said, all right, well, let's put that on beat one. Okay. So one, two, three, four, tick a tick And I went through all the, you know, placing in all these different spots. And then... Okay. So then when I messed with the orchestration is when it became a five-note thing. So it'd be like snare, ride, rack time, ride, tick a tick floor time, ride, and then another quarter note. I'm not even sure if that's right, but it was essentially orchestrating it between the snare, rack tom, and floor tom, and then adding another quarter note at the end. So it became five beats. Okay, long. cool, man. So one, two. Got it. No, it was just it was two. So it'd be snare drum and ride, floor tom and ride, and then another quarter note. So that's five quarter notes long. So triple it one. That's so cool. it one one. So triple it one, triple it one one, triple it one, triple it one one, triple it one, triple it one one. And then just orchestrating that. Yeah, exactly. I can't do I can't do your voicing it with my mouth. I have to do Hopefully, hopefully, we just gave some people some new ringtones for their phones. Yeah. So anyway, that just kind of came out of me, and it took me like it took me a minute to figure out what I just naturally played, and then and and forcing that into a four bar phrase, and then putting the starting the four stroke rough on beat one on B4, on B2, and just kind of experimenting with it. So. And what I think is so cool is that, I mean, that's the concept behind the article is the flexible five or for you, the flexible four. Yeah. Just pick anything and then go down the rabbit hole with it and see how far you can get. And I think the biggest compliment that you could get, like you said, if somebody came by your practice space would be them saying, what was that? And then you thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be 13 steps to get you back to where I started because that's how far I've gone with this thing. And that's yeah, that's yeah. that's so cool because you and I have access to right, right, left, right. But what you we both have access to that chop. But what we've done with it can be so varied. 
And I think that's what can allow us to come from any walk of life, any age group, and sit down and have a dinner. Because at some point, it could be right, right, left, let's discuss. Or yeah. right, right, left, right, you know. Yeah. So that's really cool, man. Well, awesome. I what it came down to me was, was when you hear something really difficult, and you think, wow, what did they do? I have no idea what they're doing. Chances are there's like one little idea that they just expanded on. So uh. You just have to find the root of it. There's a Dave DeCenzo lick that you and I should break down for a podcast. He does in the Modern Drummer solo or in his Modern Drummer Festival solo. And it's this little hi-hat thing. And it's like somewhere between a five-stroke roll and a seven-stroke roll. And <laughs> I've never been able to figure it out. But I've also never tried to figure it out. Just every time it happens, I go, oh, that's so sick. But I'm scared that if I figure it out, it'll lose its magic. Yeah. So I just kind of leave it there on the on the TV screen. But it's like this weird, he uses his left foot, so there's an extra note there. He's sweeping down to the snare drum. So it's, yeah, it's 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 it really out. cool. All right, all right, we'll break it down. That'll be our well, SAT word for for next month. There you go. <laughs> all right, let's get into our cover artists uh, for this issue. And in the October issue, the cover artist is Mr. Elon Rubin. Now, for me, the first time I think I ever saw Elon Rubin, you're going to need to correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't he like in a modern drummer contest or didn't he play on the modern drummer festival as a kid he did he won the under 18 undiscovered drummer contest that's right but he wasn't like 17 he was way under 18 right uh he was 11 (laughs) (laughs) he was 11 (laughs) oh i remember seeing that and i was like okay what just happened and then you know what was funny was he kind of had like a little bit of kind of buzz around him for the next couple years at NAM and stuff you know when he was 14 and 15 people would say oh Elon Rubin's over at this booth and it and at the time it was like yeah isn't that the kid that won the modern drummer contest and then out of nowhere people are like oh did you hear Elon Rubin on the new Paramore album did you hear Elon Rubin's playing with Nine Inch Nails and, and it was like yeah. gig after gig after gig and not like a kid. People were like really like he was like a revered drummer, like a professional. He had that kind of Josh Freeze thing about him where people really took what he was doing seriously. And it just blew me away, um, you know, that that had become what he is now. So the people that know him now only know him now. But I remember him walking around Nam, and he was the kid that won the Modern Drummer Contest. Yeah, he's not a kid anymore. I mean, I, I used to think that Josh Freeze could walk into Nine Inch Nails whenever he wanted and, and be the drummer. I think right. he. I think he'll have a hard time taking it back from Elon at this point. It's his gig, and he plays. Sometimes he plays keyboards. Sometimes he plays guitar parts. I mean, he's he's multifaceted, and he owns that gig. So, dude, I I saw man, I can't remember what it was. It was maybe like, I know this sounds weird, but I honestly think it was Nine Inch Nails on Hot August Nights. Um. I think it was something where you would normally see like a blues artist or a country artist. I'm not kidding. But anyways, I saw them playing this concert. Elon Rubin was on it, and um, uh, Pino Palladino was on bass, which was weird to see Pino in Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, right. But what was crazy was seeing Elon completely run the show. Like, Pino's looking back at Elon for cues. Trent's like queuing off of Elon. Like it was, like you said, it was Elon's gig. I mean, it was. It blew me away. Yeah, and the first time I kind of really paid attention to him was when he, his solo project, New Regime. His last when he did his last record, he made a whole bunch of videos of like in the studio, and there was one where he played all the parts. So he well, he played all the parts on the, all the records, but he did a video where he he, he like shows himself playing all the parts simultaneously. So there's like five versions wow. of him on screen. 
playing. But when he plays the drums, I mean, it is undeniably amazing, powerful. He's a powerhouse. Yeah, man. But it's it's cool because it's like it's very professional. It he looks like he's doing so much more than he is because of his stage presence. But he's he's not letting himself get caught up in the fact that he could chop it out. I mean, when you see that modern drummer solo when he's like you said eleven, the kid's obviously got insane chops and he he can blaze all day on the drum set. And then you see him with Nine Inch Nails and he plays the part exactly as the part should be. But he just looks so bombastic on the kit. You you just feel like okay, this this guy owns this gig. It's it's really cool. Yeah, there's a heavy um, John Bonham vibe. Uh, yeah. Plus the fact that he plays. He's ambidextrous, which to me, he, like, I've never really had a, a the aesthetic of playing open handed to me just never worked. Like, I, right. I just never liked watching Lenny White and Simon Phillips and even Billy Cobham. It just, it just didn't work for me. And I'm even left handed, so maybe that's, that's why, but <laughs> I just never liked it. But when I see him play, it's like, okay, he's, when he plays with the left hand on the hi hat, it, it's, convincing and i can see the benefit of it and then he plays on the ride symbol it's with the right hand there's no he doesn't move the ride symbol to the left so he just he just wails both ways so when i saw him do the guitar center drum off uh he was like a, a featured artist a couple years back did you see okay. that no i haven't it's on it's online he starts out by like programming a drum machine in real time just adding beats and and some synth parts and stuff and then he solos over top of it and it is undeniable to check that guy out so he, that is he, awesome. he, he's inspired me to, to actually learn how to play open-handed because when he does it it's like okay now i see you can add the toms in there easier man a lot more power i just i just went through that with a camper here um killer drummer but he's full left-handed and we have to turn the drum set around for him every time he plays and i was trying to explain to him like how much more beneficial it would be if he was just left hand lead on a right handed drum set you know it's like all you have to do is retrain your right foot now I know that doesn't it's not easy but I was jealous of it it's like you don't understand if you could just play open handed you would have all the the toms would be open to you when you're grooving on the hi-hat and this this instrument was created open handed the hi-hat was on the ground we didn't hit it with our hands so when you played the ride cymbal the toms were open to you and that's you know in the old school kits, you know, you have that whole percu- percussion setup right over the bass drum. Right. And it was open to you. And then when we got into the rock and roll thing and later jazz, we started crossing our hands. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool to see the, the melodic stuff that, uh, like you said, of Billy Cobham, Elon Rubin, Carter Beaufort, uh, that they come up with when they're playing open-handed. I'm very yeah. jealous of and it. And you don't whack. I mean, he plays with so much authority that there's no way he could do that crossed over. He would be whacking his wrists together. Exactly. So you have exactly. to play open-handed. And I, I kind of found, discovered that when I was relearning Smells Like Teen Spirit for, for my own purposes. <laughs> I couldn't play that without the hi-hat being as high as it would go on the stand. As high as Dave Grohl had it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, he didn't just do that because he thought it looked cool. He did that because if he didn't, he would be smashing his hands together throughout yeah. the entire song. Unless you have the uh, the Bruce Lee three-inch death punch <laughs> right. together. You know, it's it's pretty tough. Now, one thing that I thought was cool, too, is he obviously can he's a huge artist he has huge gigs he can play for any drum company in the world and he's a q drums artist um and he said in there that he recorded the album was it the nine inch nails album that he recorded with copper drums yeah i believe so yeah that i mean now have you ever gotten a chance to demo or play a copper drum set yeah they uh they sent us some kits a few years back and they sent us a like a 
a galvanized steel kit that was really interesting. It was like riveted together. It looked really industrial, but it sounded amazing. It was How much is the shipping on that? You know, he actually was in the owner Jeremy was actually in New York. He was he was jump taking okay. for Joey Wonker with uh, Nora yeah. Jones. So he was going out on the road. So he just had he had it all kind of shipped over with the with the gear that he would have was going to take on the road. Wow. But they they were actually weren't incredibly heavy. They were really thin in fact. It's not like just a, a, a solid steel drum set. I yeah. Gotcha. But the copper ones were definitely much I mean they're they're big and heavy drums. You need a drum tech for sure to, to get those in and out. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and they are, make cool stuff. Are they crazy loud? No. Okay. No. I mean, so just when Elon plays them. Yeah, I mean, they were <laughs> they were definitely louder than like a mahogany kit, but sure. they they were surprisingly focused. And he does a smart thing by putting wood uh, re rings inside. So oh, not, cool. Yeah, they're not all not all of them are all metal. They usually have some element of wood inside. And there's a vibe to to Q drums. I I think everything they do just has like a it just looks cool. It feels cool. It's not. Yeah. It's not fake. It feels real and authentic. Um, right. And the dude knows how to make really, really good stuff. So. Well, I think it speaks a lot for their company that Elon's chosen to be, like I said, their artist. While he's got some of the biggest gigs on the planet now, is is Nine Inch Nails his current gig or is he out with somebody else? His own band. He just put out a another record with his band, New Regime, and they've been touring. And he's fronting that band, playing guitar and singing. Um, <sighs> And they just, I think they were touring with, um, shoot, it was like a, a hardcore punk band that got back together recently. Wow. Uh, I know they're doing some gigs with uh, Gang of Four. Maybe that's okay. over, but they did some shows. And there was another one, too. Uh, maybe it was Refused. I think they were. No some, way. Yeah, they were opening up for Refused. Refused is together right now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. We played with those guys back in like the 90s, man. That's, yeah. that's awesome. It took a while yeah, for, the, for them to kind of, now they're like heroes and legends. But Right, yeah, yeah. No, we did like an old school hardcore show with all a bunch of uh, New York band, uh, or East Coast hardcore. We did, uh, it was Snapcase, Refused, Strife, um, you know, and then my little teeny bobber band. Um, <laughs> all right, well, awesome. Well, guys, definitely check out Elon Rubin. Just YouTube him and you'll just start seeing what we're talking about. He's... He's a monster, and uh, if you get a chance, read the article because it really lets you into his world. So, now let's get into our gear review section. So, you reviewed a bunch of stuff in the October issue, but we're gonna kind of sit on two things, which would be the Angel drum set and the V Classic symbol. So, let's start with the Angel drum set. Uh, where are those guys out of? They are in Eastern Europe, I believe. They are in Hungary. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. Um, I, I cannot believe. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I can't believe the the hardware on that thing. Like even <laughs> yeah. the bass drum claws, the hoops. It's so. Do they make all of it? Yeah, they do. It's it's. Pr- I mean, it's these are heavy, heavy drums. Uh, they machine their own lugs, their own claws. Um, the hoops are kind of where they made their name, the Angel Hoops, which are they're not single flange hoops. They're straight hoops. Uh, the difference is that they're they're not. Uh, like single flange have little claws that go over the top. These right. are straight steel hoops with no flange, and they they welded on little ears for the tension rods to go through. Um, they're getting a lot of. I mean, a lot of people are checking them out. I know. Uh, again, Chris McHugh put them on one of his Craviato kits, like the entire kit. Oh, so you can you could order the hoops by themselves if you wanted to. Exactly. I mean, it's a high end upgrade. I wouldn't okay. put it on a Pearl Export or something, but I mean, right, if, if sure. you like. 
I would say like if you have a like again, say you have a nice nickel over brass snare that came with triple flange hoops, well then I would suggest buying also a die cast hoop and maybe an angel hoop to give you three different options where the triple flange will right. kinda be middle of the road, die cast will be a sharper, more focused sound and the angel will just open it up a little bit more. Gotcha. Not as much as like a like a like a traditional single flange is a really thin hoop. That'll that might make the snare kind of spray a little bit too much for for your taste. Sure. The angel just seemed to just open it up a little bit and but and still being strong. It's not it's not flimsy. It's not going to bend on you. I was blown away. I mean, it, it's from the floor tom mounts, you know, for the legs, the especially the bass drum claws. They it's like, man, there's so much custom design that went into this kit besides just the shells and then when you said it's heavy it's heavy because of the hardware but is it also heavy because of how dense the wood is that this kit was made out of what's it called black wangi black wangi so i don't i i didn't fact check it but when i saw this kit at nam last year they said that there's there's regulations on on black wangi to where it can't be exported out of africa to most countries wow but for some reason hungary can get it so these guys were, I think, the only people on Earth who were able to make a solid shell kit out of, of black wenge. So this is one of one of a kind. It's the wood is there's no, it's not a veneer. It's solid wenge. I mean, it's thick shells like like Brady style, like thick right stave yep. shell. Actually, I think they do block shells. So it's just chunks of black wenge, like stacked together and created drums. So they are the real deal, and they sounded amazing. I mean, they. Sonically, they were one of the few times I've sat down behind a kit and said, "All right, this this drum set needs no microphones." Uh, when I did the demo for for our website, I purposely only used an overhead and a bass drum mic because they didn't need anything else. It wasn't just for it wasn't for any reason other than when I when I recorded them with those two mics, I'm like, "All right, it doesn't need anything else." And this was eighteen, twelve, fourteen. Yeah, yeah. So pop sizes. Bop sizes, but they sounded amazing, tuned really low. Like the eighteen, it could it could do anything that a twenty could do. Maybe really, maybe a twenty-two if if you really finesse it. The toms were incredible, super low, gushy, punchy, but they also sounded good high as well. So yeah, it's it's a this is about as high end boutiquey as you can get. Um, That's but, awesome, you man. Know, fortunate to check it out, and and I know they're always at the trade shows. They're at Chicago Jump Show. They're at Nam, so yeah, if you ever get a chance to check them out, it's and it's it's. I know it's a small team of guys, so and there's a there's a guy in the U.S. who kind of runs the business here, and just good dudes, and he knows he really knows drums, so it's nice, good stuff. Awesome. Well, we also learned that there's something, or I learned that there's something called the Janka hardness scale, right. and uh, the old uh, black wenge measures sixteen thirty on the Janka <laughs> hardness scale, which is it, it actually. It, it's kind of cool because we Intel I didn't know that that there was even a scale but I didn't know that I could at least visually and numerically see the difference between maple birch you know and going up into walnut and and harder woods and harder woods all the way up to babinga um, and that then then all of a sudden you have like a numerical kind of thing in your mind that allows you to think of what is this drum going to sound like before I even hit it um, you know what are the characteristics going to be so I, I'm, I'm excited to hear this kit so let's yeah. take a listen to it
also another boutique small company that I checked out in the uh, October issue was V Classics, who uh, is owned by a gentleman in Turkey named Torib. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, Torb or Torab. It's straight out of the Turkish tradition, but he's goes more kind of adventurous and, and at the same time making sure that everything has that kind of classic K-style look. So it's heavily patinaed and hand-hammered and kind of classic dark sounds. But he kind of went a little nuts and sent, uh, I mean, some, some regular 20, 22, and 24-inch rides that sound luscious and gorgeous, um, dark with a nice stick attack real kind of jazzy old k sounding then he also sent a 22 inch ride that had three like two inch holes drilled into yeah i it, saw that i saw that which was pretty wicked and and it it did what i thought it would do it brought in it didn't i expected it to be super trashy like an ozone or something sure it didn't do that it just it just broke up the sound enough to give it a little bit more of a contemporary kind of edgy tone uh, and dried it out a little bit but it still sounds like a great jazz kind of jazz style ride uh, and then he sent a couple splashes with jingles that were attached to it which was neat to kind of put them on a snare drum and, and hit them like that or, or layer them on top of a hi-hat like on the top side it was kind of neat just to bring some jingle effects in it uh, but my favorite of the whole bunch was this like paper thin 20 inch crash that he put like I think he put like 20 rivets in it or something uh, oh my goodness! Yeah, like maybe not twelve rivets, small rivets. So it's 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 an amazing sounding symbol. That's the one that I actually ended up adding to my collection at the end. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, it's just it's super thin. Like you could probably fold it in half. It's so thin. Wow! So it's as soon as you hit it, it just opens up, and and I love it because the sizzle. It sounds like there's a symbol that Brian Blade uses all the time. That's just like sounds like a junkyard but in the best possible way right and you just assume that it's 40 years old and yeah broken it's all changed up. hands 10 times and yeah, yeah. and this you know the other that. thing that's really uh interesting about this stuff is that they're using b25 bronze which uh for people that don't know that means that it's 25 percent tin and 75 percent copper and you know, with Zildjian, Peisty, Minol, Sabian, their top end symbols are all B20 bronze, so 20% tin, which is considered the that's the more flexible metal, and then the copper gives it its strength. And so, like when you said I can literally almost fold this thing in half, I mean that's part of it. It's not just that it's thin; it's also a softer metal than most top end symbols. Yeah, and they claim he claims that that's kind of the ancient formula. So. Okay. I'm not sure what the old K's that were made in Turkey are made from, but it might it's probably sure. B twenty five. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's really so cool. cool. Really fun stuff. I mean that that twenty inch light sizzle crash, I mean I now it's like whenever I play a gig that's that's my crash. Really? It's, now yeah. how come it's so difficult for people in the drum industry to just hire a graphic designer? Like <laughs> that logo makes them look so I wouldn't say cheap, but I just I, when I when I saw the pictures of them, I was like, "Oh, cool! There's a new entry level symbol company." Yeah. And then I read the article, and I was like, "Wait, these are like baller status symbols." Yep. Guys, I mean, you spend so much money on the product itself. Yep. Just get a graphic designer. Go to <laughs> 99designs.com. Put up a contest for 150 bucks for a new logo. Boom! You'll get a thousand entries from great graphic designers. Bob's. And speaking of that. I should probably do that for my website before I start talking <laughs> trash because I have like a font in italic. Yeah, Moving I mean, on. Well, I mean, he, but I mean, I said that all aside, 
Exactly. And I, I'm bringing that up because I'm scared that that logo or that name will actually scare people. They'll, they will think what I thought, like, oh, this is a cool entry-level symbol. Um, because he, And also they have kind of a different look because um, I think you were explaining in the article that they have a very specific coding that kind of darkens it a little bit, um, not just appearance-wise but sound-wise. Yeah. So people are going to see this and they're not going to recognize the color of the symbol and then they're not going to, you know, then they're going to see the logo and just think, oh, all right, new symbols. But, I mean, the fact that you've played almost every symbol on the planet and you added one to your collection really speaks to this stuff. So, Yep, offering something unique. And I, there's a demo online, but, you know, we'll drop in some audio here. Well, let's take a listen to it. It's time to get to our pick of the week segment. So, Mr. Dawson, what is your pick of the week this time? Well, we spent so much time talking about snare drum, so I had to pick uh, a little tiny little upgrade that everyone can do that's going to make their drum respond a little bit better and be easier to deal with. And it is gross grain ribbon, which you can buy at any fabric store, any kind of hobby store. It's just a ribbon, it, and it, you can replace those terrible plastic straps or those, like, those paper clip type wire things that just poke you all to death when you change out your your snares. or even worse that that string that frays all the time yeah or yeah the shoe string man forget Ugh. about it so this is just like it's a it's a ribbon that's weaved in a certain way where it won't fray on you and it doesn't stretch so as you put tension on the wires it's not going to just keep loosening and loosening um my good friend Ron Dunnett actually was, I give him credit for hipping me to this because he uses it on all of Dunnett classic drums. Um, oh, really? Okay. And it's it's becoming more, I mean, you see like like uh, Canopus, they sell an, like a accessory that's snare drum straps. Well, it's just gross grain ribbon with their logo on it. Uh, and the, there's so, a lot of people who are doing that. And it's only like it, three bucks for a spool that, I mean, that'll last you a <laughs> lifetime. It'll last you 20 cents. It's called cross grain ribbon. Gross, G-R-O-S. Oh, okay, gross grain ribbon. Got gross it. Gross grain ribbon, and yeah, you can get any color you want. Um, you could, you can even order with your own logo if you really want to go that far, but it's an immediate upgrade. Your snare will sound crisper. It'll be easier to adjust. It won't stretch out, so you won't have to constantly be redoing, like redoing the whole strainer after you, because like with, with the, uh, like a shoestring, you're going to have to keep tightening the, Yep. throw off like every hour which is constantly moving it to the left or the right of the snare depending on where your throw off is so it exactly. doesn't stay centered anymore yeah so this will just keep it in one spot as long as you have a good throw off that locks the the ribbon in place you're not going to have to adjust it so much so that's my five dollar instant upgrade <laughs> five dollar instant upgrade boom nice well my pick of the week this time is an old uh video slash dvd slash movie um and it was actually one of the first sports movies made for imax it's called jordan to the max and i usually have my campers watch it here at camp um and it's it's a documentary of michael jordan's 
entire career, but it's really centered on his last season with the Bulls in which he won the championship. Um, and so the reason why it's my pick of the week is not really a little bit from Michael Jordan, but it's mainly because of inside the documentary, he really breaks down his mental approach to a lot of different aspects of basketball that are completely relatable to the drum set. And he also has a ton of uh, interview footage in there from Phil Jackson that talks about his Zen Buddhist teachings and how he mentally had Michael approach the game of basketball. And the one thing that I got out of it um, was leading up to PASIC uh, two years ago, I was just scared out of my mind. And I just couldn't think, how am I going to be ready for that moment? When I walk into this room, there's 1,500 drummers sitting in chairs that are all percussion majors. They know everything that's right and wrong. How am I going to prepare for that? And Michael Jordan talked about how he prepares for the last five seconds of a game when the game is tied, the ball's in his hands, he's got five seconds to go. How does he? How is he so comfortable in that moment? And he just talked about pre-visualization and that every night when he goes to sleep, he plays out every possible scenario in his mind a thousand times before he falls asleep. So when that moment gets there, he's already experienced it in his mind in every possible outcome, so nothing can freak him out. And so I started doing that with PASIC. Like, what happens if I walk out and I trip on the mic cable? Well, I had already practiced that in my mind. Like, what would the joke be right after me tripping on the mic cable? I had it locked and ready to go. What happens if I drop a stick? I had, you know, I went in the night before when my drum set was set up and I cut the tops off of water bottles, you know, and had them gaff taped around the stage. (laughs) What happens if the mic goes out? How do I instantly project to a 1,500-person crowd without a microphone? Uh, So I had everything prepared in my mind way before I ever got on that stage. And I got all of that from this movie called Jordan to the Max. Man, I got to check it out. That sounds great. I haven't seen that one. Did you see the Kobe Bryant documentary? No, I, but I want to. It, yeah, was it a one, 30 for 30? Uh, I don't Do remember. Know? It's a full-on documentary. It might be two hours yeah. long. Okay, then it wouldn't be 30. Well, it might be. ESPN produces these ones called the 30 for 30 documentaries, but I'll check it out. I think it was on, on HBO, and it was. It's, okay. Now it makes sense why he made it, because, I mean, being that he's a Jordan accolade, it's similar. It's like his, his year when he tore his Achilles tendon and he's trying to get back into the game. Okay. And he kind of goes through the whole. So you follow him during his recovery, and then he also tells you his whole life story. And he's got, like, I mean,. It's like the the dark side of Jordan, you know. He's yeah. There's a reason why Kobe is Kobe, and he admits he's had to to be the greatest. You have to sacrifice a lot of stuff. You're not going to be the best friend. You're not going to be the best spouse. You're not going to be the best son if your goal is to be the greatest basketball player on earth. Yep. And for have to hear him admit that, I'm like, oof, that's that's heavy. He just admitted that, but that's a sacrifice that you have to make if you literally want to be the greatest person at something alive. Absolutely. And that's kind of, you know, I'm when people ask, like, I just went to the 49ers game and people are like, oh, you're a Niners fan. I said, no, I'm, I'm really here for Aaron Rodgers. And they said, oh, you're a Packers fan. I said, no, I'm 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 just here for greatness. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of anything other than greatness. So I don't care who it is. I don't you know, I want to see greatness. I wanted to see Aaron Rodgers play football. So I did, you know, and um same thing with Jordan and, and Kobe. And, and I mean, that's the thing is when you look at, we don't need to get into sports, but when you look at LeBron, what he's kind of missing is that Jordan and Kobe killer instinct, you know, where you just have to drag them off the floor. And, and that's a, and so that, that approach, the mental approach that Jordan had to the game of basketball, there are things that you can decide, okay, I don't want drums to be that serious for me. Yeah. I actually want to like my life and like my, my day. Well, um, I mean, but then there's, there's no, other, there's no $8 billion career 
and drumming, you know? <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> You're not going to own a, a North Carolina sports team by being a drummer, I don't think. Maybe Ringo could, but. Yeah, that's about it. But and even still, that's a musician uh, gig, not a not a drum gig. But cool, man. By the way, uh, before we wrap it up, how are you liking the uh, off camera podcast? Oh man, I, I I listen to it every day. I mean, I just listened to uh, Stacy Peralta. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that oh. dude. I mean, I love his documentaries. I think his his uh, Bones Brigade is so inspiring, and he that documentary is what got me re obsessed with Rodney Mullen, uh-huh. who I yeah. think is a bona fide genius in a surfer guy's body. Totally. Uh, so yeah, his was great to hear how you went from being a pro skater to owning a skate company to abandoning all of it to become a documentary filmmaker and then have him admit that he doesn't make any money in documentaries. Right. Uh, he did the the Bloods and the Crips documentary that I forgot, which is, I mean, that is huge. I think every every American history class should be watching that documentary because he actually goes into the into the the hood and and sits down with these current and past gang members and gets all the the harsh truth about it so wow his was great and dave grohl's was was awesome um i'm kind of going through and selecting the few that i really wanted to check out first uh yeah it, totally and jake gyllenhaal blew my that mind that one was fantastic so yeah. good so inspiring just to hear his his dedication to each part and his ability to be selective with his career yeah so he can focus all of his energy into it rather than trying to be a jack of all like like i sometimes try to take everything that comes my way and end up not being good at any of it so i need to learn that as well like just say no to some things and and put everything into the one thing that you feel passionate about so yeah it's a good podcast highly highly recommend it to everybody good i'm glad you got a chance to check it out well i'm gonna buy some uh grass grain thread (laughs) or what is it grass cross grain ribbon and uh and then you check out the jordan of the max video everybody thanks so much for checking out the podcast um episode 11 and please if you can go to itunes give us a a rating and and some positive reviews that stuff really helps this thing move along and until next time mr dawson i will see you soon see you later peace